0: Scripture lesson four this morning comes to us from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. Listen now for God's word to you. The next day, Moses sat as judge for the people, while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, 'What "'What is this that you are doing for the people?' Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me, I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You should represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions, and make known to them the way they are to go and the things they are to do. You should also look for able-bodied men among all the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain. Set such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will go back to their home in peace." So Moses listened to Jethro, his father-in-law, and did all that he said. Moses chose able-bodied men from all Israel and appointed them as heads over the people and officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. Hard cases they brought to Moses, but minor cases they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went off to his own country." This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's uh, something about fatherly advice that can make us roll our eyes, isn't there? Uh, Especially when we're younger, but as we get older, we start to realize that maybe our fathers actually do have a little bit of wisdom to offer to us. Sometimes that fatherly advice is very sincere and heartfelt, uh, like one father who said to his child, and this sounds political, but it's not. He said, don't wear a mask. And by that, he didn't mean don't wear a mask during the pandemic, but never cover yourself, never hide who you truly are. You should always be your genuine and true self. Uh, another, uh, another, parent said, uh, another father said, always keep your people close. And by that, he meant keep the people who can show up when things are hard, the people who you rely upon keep them close by but then there are times where fatherly advice can be maybe just a little bit sarcastic and funny dads are good for that sort of thing Uh, like one dad who said to his son offering him some career advice said never take a job where you can be replaced by a bucket of sand (laughs) not sure which job that is uh but don't ever take that one uh Dads are also good at giving driving advice. Our fathers are often the ones who teach us how to drive. Uh, My dad, I think he was joking when he said this, but I also wonder if he might have been serious. He said that he is the only good driver in the world. (laughs) And that his children, by association, because we learn from him, are also the second best drivers because we learn from the best driver. There was one son, after hitting or sideswiping a Mercedes and knocking out the taillight, his dad said to him, stop crying and next time hit a Ford. <laughs> that one's for all of you people here in the Motor City. Another one last piece of a driving advice from a dad was, never use your turn signal because it's nobody else's business where you're going. <laughs> All sorts of good fatherly advice. Sometimes in our lives, things feel a lot bigger than they actually are. And so one father said to his son, he said, uh, don't sweat the petty stuff and don't pet the sweaty stuff. (laughs) A piece of fatherly advice that is near and dear to my heart uh, is, if you want to find every single choking hazard in your house, just follow your toddler around for 10 (laughs) minutes. And I can tell you that is true from personal experience. Um, We all need fatherly advice from time to time, and even Moses, it seems, needs fatherly advice, or to be more exact, he needed advice from his father-in-law and our supporting actor for this morning, a man named uh, Jethro. That Moses and this whole story that we just read, it takes place not too long after all of the high drama of the Exodus story. It's a very famous story in the Bible. Uh, we meet Moses. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's palace, even though he is a Hebrew. The, the Hebrews have been enslaved for 400 years, and yet Moses' mother, in order to save him, sends him down the Nile River, and he is taken in by Pharaoh's daughter and, and lives in the lap of luxury. But even as he's the, the prince of Egypt, or one of the princes of Egypt, he still experiences this kind of disconnect, this disconnect between who he understands himself to be as a Hebrew and the fact that he's being raised in Pharaoh's palace. And so one day he's walking around and he sees a, an Egyptian slave driver abusing one of the Hebrew enslaved Hebrews, and he intervenes. And as, as a result of that intervention, the Egyptian is killed. And so Moses, fearing for his life, fleeing from criminal charges runs and through the wilderness all the way to the land of Midian, which is in modern-day Saudi Arabia. And this is where he meets Jethro. He marries her daughter, a woman named Zipporah. They have two kids. Moses is put in charge of watching over Jethro's flocks, which is, in that, in that society, it's like him being in charge over all of his wealth, all of his accounts. You know, Moses is there for four decades, and he makes a, a nice little life for himself. He's got the wife, the kids, the stable job. All that he's missing is the picket fence, right? Moses has what any one of us in any society could want. That is, until God comes calling. One day, Moses is watching over the flocks of his father-in-law, and then he sees a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And from the bush comes the voice of God. Moses, Moses, the the place where you're standing is on holy ground. You know that place that you just came from, that you ran away from to avoid criminal charges? Well, I want you to go back there, to stand in front of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and say, let my people go. And that's what Moses says, I think I'm going through a tunnel, God, I'm losing you. (laughs) Moses reacts the way that so many characters throughout the Bible react, the way that so many of us, react when God calls to us. We object. We have a list of reasons as to why God made a bad choice. And chief among Moses's resistance is the fact that he's not a good speaker. You want me to be your spokesperson, God? I'm not eloquent of speech. Choose somebody else. But God insists, and he calls Moses. And so Moses, his sister Miriam, and his brother Aaron, they lead this liberation movement of the enslaved people in Egypt. And what follows is famous in the Bible. It's the stories of the the plagues, the Passover, the crossing through the Red Sea, all of this until we come to the wilderness where we find ourselves this morning. You know, Moses objects to God's call in his life, and yet despite his objections, Moses is doing it. He's doing what God has asked him to do. He has led these enslaved people out of Egypt and into freedom. But there seems to me to be some incredible anxiety going on here. Anxiety on the part of Moses, who has received this call from God, who seems to think that he has to do this all by himself, and anxiety on the part of the people, who for the first time in generations are free. And this is all new and exciting to them, and they're not exactly sure where to go and what to do. And, and so, Moses, in response to this anxiety, he takes everything on himself. He puts the, the responsibility of leading the people of God squarely on his shoulders. That we could almost imagine him saying something like, I alone can do it, I'm the only one who can do it. And we see how this works. Jethro comes to visit Moses. And before before this scene, there's some catching up, some thanking God for all the things God did in Egypt. And then the next day, Jethro watches how Moses spends his time, how he spends his day. He takes his seat as soon as the sun rises, and he sits there while all of the Hebrews come to him. If we take the Bible literally, which I would caution you against, we take the Bible literally in every circumstance, it's something like two million people who come out of Egypt, and Moses is the spiritual advisor to all of these people. He sits there, it's like the line of the DMV, take a number and go stand over there, or like how we used to Black Friday shop, waiting for the doors to Walmart or Best Buy to open, right, and we all fight each other for a place. Everybody's coming to Moses with their questions, and we can sort of imagine the questions that people are asking him. Some of these questions are, are big, sincere questions. Moses, my, my father is sick. Do you think that God is hearing my prayers for his healing? Moses, my, my neighbor has a lot of needs, and they're, they're not getting their daily needs, but I've been helping them out. But when is it enough? When can I stop? When can I be done helping them? When have I done what God requires of me? Moses, you've, you've heard the voice of God before, what does it sound like? I want to make sure I'm hearing correctly, and it's not just the pepperoni pizza digesting in my stomach from last night. All of these sincere questions. Moses, why did it God? Why did it take God 400 years to respond to our oppression, our suffering? And what about all of those Egyptians that drowned back in the Red Sea back there? All of these big questions. And there's also some trivial questions that come Moses' way, because the people are anxious. And Moses, do you know what God's favorite color is? I want to make sure I'm putting my tent up in a color that's pleasing to the Lord. Moses, my my children won't behave. Do you you know what? Does God have any parenting advice? Moses, when are we getting out of here? When are we going to the promised land? I'm tired of walking around in the wilderness. Hey, Moses, hey, Moses, hey, Moses. Over and over again. And, And Jethro is watching this. And he says to Moses, What you're doing is not good. You're going to exhaust yourself. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to burn out doing this. What we would call today, what Moses is doing, we would call it overfunctioning. Overfunctioning is part of what's known as family systems theory. It's a psychological theory that helps explain why we are the way we are. And um, it all is based on the fact that we all exist within systems. Family systems, workplace systems, the, the church is a system. and think of it sort of like the human body, all these different parts and components working together. And the big idea within family systems theory is that when one part is hurting, it affects the whole system. And so sometimes in family systems, you get the overfunctioner, the one who takes on everything. Onto their own shoulders, who takes on the things that somebody else might be responsible for, their emotions, their feelings, and, and makes it as if they're their own responsibility. What does overfunctioning look like? I'll give you a couple examples from my life. It looks like me setting an alarm for on Heather's phone so I make sure she gets up, even though she's fully capable of doing that on her own. It looks like me in the passenger seat of the car, telling Heather how to drive. Because remember, I was taught by the best driver in the world. <laughs> it looks like when Axel and I are building Legos, me doing it while he watches because I know the right way to, for it to be built, and I want it to look just right. Overfunctioning looks like taking on someone's emotions and making them your own responsibility, putting them on your shoulders. It looks like at work, taking on all of the projects for yourself because you are the one who knows how to do it the right way. Overfunctioning is being overly accommodating when somebody needs to reschedule. All of these are ways of overfunctioning. And it exists in the church too. It's that famous phrase that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. It's the same people being nominated over and over again, it's the same people being pu- in positions of power and authority. It's when you have a mission endeavor and you don't invite anybody else to participate in what you're doing. This is what overfunctioning is. And overfunctioning, the opposite side of overfunctioning is underfunctioning. Overfunctioning maybe seems harmless. What's wrong with doing things for somebody else or taking things on? Well, the, the shadow side of it is it never allows somebody to grow. Within a family system, if one person is doing all of the things for somebody else, they never get to, to grow into maturity. And within the church, it means that we're missing out on the gifts, the talents, the dreams of somebody else. And so Jethro, as he's watching Moses overfunction, he says, you can't do this. You're going to exhaust yourself. You're going to wear yourself out. Yes, he's going to wear himself out. But it's not just that Moses can't do it. It's that Moses shouldn't be doing it all by himself. God does not speak only to Moses alone. God speaks to the other people. Moses, by taking all of the responsibility on himself, is missing out on the gifts and the talents and the dreams the things that everybody else has around them that they have to offer to the community. There's no room for over and under functioning. God is not an over-functioner. You ever notice that God seems to always call other people to participate? It kind of gets in the way of our, well, God will take care of everything. God, it seems like the, the dreams that God has for the world require other people to help make them happen as well. God is not an overfunctioner, and neither are we to be overfunctioners or underfunctioners. There's this place, a spot, a space for everybody's dreams and talents and gifts. It's what makes community work. And just a little bit here, in just a few moments, actually, we're going to do one of my favorite things we do in the Presbyterian Church, and that is ordain and install new elders and deacons for their upcoming term. This is something that makes me geek out really hard. I love the ordination of elders and deacons because it is a reminder to us that we cannot do this alone, that we are in this together, that we do this together. It is a good thing that we're doing this together, that we show love and grace together. We seek justice in the world around us together. We feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick together. We create a caring community together together. We do this together, and it is good for us to do this together. That we are not over or under functioners, but what makes community happen is when all of us bring what we have to offer. That's what makes Greenfield possible. That we are not us without you. Whether you have said yes to the nominating committee, or if your answer has always been maybe next year, you have a call, you have a purpose, you contribute to the life of this community, that we do it together. We share the ministry together. Thanks be to God. Amen.